Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 257, The Fall of Wake Island. As the month of December was passing by, the Marines on Wake held out, holding up the Japanese timetable of Operation Number 1. Yet by the early morning of December 23rd, the invaders, heavily reinforced, approached the Three Little Islands for their second landing attempt. And, no longer a concern, were the defenders' wildcat fighters. With their overwhelming superiority of men and ships, the Japanese were approaching the island's various shores. As we saw last time, the Marines on Wilkes Island, on the lower half of the sideways U, had successfully defended their turf, to the point of massacring every enemy soldier who set foot on the island but had paid a price for it, and now they were being shelled by Admiral Kajioka's fleet, only to be replaced by more accurate dive bombers. The air attack went on until at least 2 p.m., and that still left the 900-man force approaching the main island from the south. Going back to the early morning, the Marine leading the defense there was 2nd Lieutenant Robert Hanna, He watched as the closest Japanese patrol boat to him, Boat 32, touched shore. As it was almost as big as a destroyer, it held hundreds of men. But not to let the situation get out of hand, Hannah took control of Battery H and had some 20 shells fired at the craft. Though it was pure luck, the last shell hit the munitions on board, which set off a massive explosion. Soon the soldiers of Patrol Boat 32 were jumping over the sides to get away from the fires. Then they found themselves trying to evade the Marines' bullets. The raging fires on the boat gave off more light than any 60-inch searchlight. As the men from Boat 32 were dropping by the dozens, the fire also lit up Boat 33, which had beached itself further west or to the left along the coast. Their Battery E commander, Lieutenant William Lewis, reacted with his three-inch guns. He decided it was best to have the shells explode over the enemy's heads, thereby increasing the chance that the fragments struck true. Other Marines with their machine guns came forward to add to the onslaught on the beaches, while the bodies of the Japanese men made little piles where they fell. Later, one Japanese interpreter would estimate that during the pre-dawn darkness, batteries H and E had killed more than 330 advancing troops, just over one-third of the first landing wave. Later, however, the Japanese survivors would seek revenge for their lost comrades. But for the Marines, this was a moment that fate intervened. About a mile away to the northeast, 
on the northeast corner of the airfield, Marine Commander Devereaux made a decision based on nothing. Seeing the flashes from Lieutenant Lewis's Battery E, Devereaux believed that Lewis was not contributing anything, but only wasting shells. Though this was only his interpretation, he was the commander, and so ordered Lewis to cease fire. It's possible that Devereaux did not understand Lewis's strategy of firing over the enemy's heads, but it had been working. Scores of enemy troops were falling in the surf. Still, the guns were now silent, which allowed about 300 men of the Ataya Company to safely reach shore. These survivors gathered and were about to charge Hannah's Battery H, the one that had set the patrol ship ablaze. Now trying to solve a problem that he created, Devereaux had the pilot commander, Putnam, take his remaining pilots and ground crew, now considered infantry, and head for Battery H to protect it. Putnam had about 12 Marines with guns and 14 civilian contractors who demanded to help. This was agreed to, and the civilians would carry extra ammunition for the Marines. As the Japanese were about to charge Battery H with overwhelming numbers, it was also to be a contest of tactics and culture. The Japanese valued bravery, which had already been shown by them storming the beaches, even though many of their comrades were cut down. Further, their direct assaults, the thinking was, would cause panic among their adversaries whereas the Americans focused on the firepower of their weapons, their marksmanship, and a disciplined approach to combat. As they would throughout the war, the Japanese fired flares to show them where the Americans were. Then, in groups of about seven men each, they would charge straight at the enemy, screaming all the while. To show their bravery, their goal was to get in close and dispatch the enemy troops with their bayonets, which was effective a few hundred years ago. As they ran through the light of their own flares, the Marines opened up and took out the charging soldiers with disciplined, relatively well-aimed fire. The number of falling men caused the Japanese to stop running, but they had come close enough to grab a few civilian workers. These men were taken away, and now it was time for another tested method. The civilians were stripped and slowly tortured with bayonets. The idea was for their screams to enrage the Marines, who would then come running to save their friends and thus be cut down. But as mad as the Marines were getting, hearing the screams of agony and for mercy, they stayed put. This standoff continued as other Japanese troops were able to work their way around the Marine pilots and reach the airfield. Putnam and company figured out what was going on, but they did not have the numbers or firepower to shift them. Then morning came, and with the sunlight, the Japanese used their numbers to whittle down the Marine pilots and their civilian helpers. Of course, by this time, the attackers had lost many more men. With the situation now desperate and fatigue setting in, the Marines and their civilian comrades ignored their discipline. First a construction worker and then 
hammering Hank Elrod, grabbed a machine gun and simply ran around, shooting up any enemy troops that he came near. Hank somehow made it back to the battery, but the civilian, John Pete Sorensen, did not. Still, they had not only caused more Japanese casualties, but they had engendered their own fear. The battery pit now held 2nd Lieutenant Hannah, Putnam, a few more Marines, and several civilians. Two of the latter were either firing a pistol or throwing grenades. The two men, now back-to-back, agreed to kill themselves before letting the Japanese capture them and do to them what they did to their friends during the night. But soon a carrier-based fighter came along and strafed the pit. The two American civilians, back-to-back, met their end. Then Hemmering Hank stood up to throw another grenade, but a Japanese soldier had been waiting for this and ended his life with a single bullet. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Going back a few hours on the southern side of the main island, near Marine Camp 1 on the western end, the Japanese there were being confronted by 2nd Lieutenant Arthur Poindexter and his mobile team. It may be remembered that Devonroe had given Poindexter a dozen or so Marines, all armed with machine guns, and told to roam around, to engage the enemy wherever they came upon them. They were the equivalent of a lethal fire brigade. Having fought through the night, when light came, they spotted two enemy landing craft trying to make sure near the first camp. Point Dexter and his men charged. Having gotten in close, the second lieutenant and three of his men ran to the shore. The rest of the team laying down covering fire. Throwing grenades, luck was on their side as the explosives landed in both craft, killing or injuring all those on board. Camp 1 was safe for the moment. With the situation stabilized, Poindexter decided to change up the game. This constant running around was exhausting for his men, and there would come a time when the enemy would get the better of him and his. So, first he set up a line cutting across the whole of his part of Wake. The first line held 10 machine guns, supported by 50 riflemen behind them. Seeing this, several groups of Japanese attacked the line, again in headlong fashion, but they soon were taken out. The disciplined approach had scored another victory. As he knew the airfield had to be the enemy's main goal, Poindexter marched his staggered line to the east, towards the airstrip. As they approached the field, the Americans sped up their pace. This allowed them to come upon the Japanese unexpectedly, 
who reacted by diving for the closest bomb crater. The Marines took advantage of this by lobbing grenades into each hole. With such an opening move, the Marines were soon back in control of the airfield. But as they pushed on to the east and north, they came upon a larger and better organized Japanese force. Poindexter, hoping to keep his success through surprise going, reorganized his men, bringing the machine gunners together to blow a hole in the Japanese line. But just as he was about to give the go-ahead, Major Devereaux was spotted on the road before him, and with him were Japanese troops and a white flag. It was not the invaders who had surrendered. Backing up a bit, Devereaux had all but one of his phone lines cut, and though this should have been seen by him as a standard tactic, he assumed that all the units he could not reach were wiped out, and though he had 60 Marines guarding his headquarters, he never sent anyone out to gather intelligence or to help pursue the enemy. Lastly, the enemy flags put up by the invaders on Wilkes Island had convinced him that all his men there were no more. Yet, had he come outside of his bunker, he would have heard the continuous firefighting all around him. But that never happened. So, when 12 or so enemy troops started firing on his headquarters, protected by 60 Marines, he called USN Commander Winfield Cunningham on his one working phone and advised that they surrender. Cunningham, knowing even less of the true situation, agreed. From that moment on, Devereux walked around and ordered his men to surrender and placed the blame completely on Cunningham. Word of the surrender was radioed to Vice Admiral William Pye, Kimmel's replacement, and in response, he ordered the withdrawal of Rear Admiral Frank Fletcher's two task forces, the one heading to Wake and the other to the Marshals to shield Wake from the enemy. When Fletcher was told, by some poor soul, the Admiral lost it right there on the bridge. In fact, the officers around him, also exasperated, urged their commander to continue on to Wake. They had a relatively overwhelming force of their own, but Fletcher obeyed. Barely. Even less so, the Marines on the Tangier, dying to save their brothers, almost mutinied on their own. So, it will come as no surprise that everyone who heard of Pai's order instantly hated the man, regardless which branch of the military they were in. Wake could have been retaken. Another disaster like Pearl did not have to happen. Equally, unexpectedly, Pi would be relieved of command on the last day of the year, just one week after Devereux and Cunningham surrendered. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. 
That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. For the next few hours, Devon Rowe walked around Wake and ordered his men to stand down. But it's not clear who was more shocked. The Marines, as the vast majority were still engaging and, it must be said, winning against the enemy, or their major, who assumed that the vast majority of them were dead. Be that as it may, because of the early surrender, the Marines only lost 28 men, with dozens more wounded. However, the Japanese, and this was a glimpse into their future, lost more than 500 men due to their tactics and interpretation of courage. Yet, as for what was reported back to Tokyo, that number was closer to 150. But it was that very success of the Marines that would do them harm, now that they were in the hands of the Japanese. With the entire group of islands standing down, the occupiers gathered the Marines, stripped off their clothes to humiliate them, and then lined them up in front of their machine guns. But just before the order to fire could be given, Admiral Kajioka arrived and ordered that the Americans be treated properly as POWs. But revenge was only delayed. The Marines were sent to China and starved, beaten, and suffered from diseases. Some died from all this. Others were summarily executed, depending on the whim of their captive. As for the Marines that survived, they sought their own revenge, chasing down one former captor who was hanged on the spot. Also, cultural differences again reared its head. When the Japanese Empire surrendered, the guards told the surviving Marines in China that the war was over. No longer enemies, the former captors offered the Americans beer and a handshake. The Marines took the beer, but instead of toasting their new friendship, they raised their glasses to the atom bomb. The civilian contractors fared no better. Of the 433, 98 were kept on wake as slave labor. Their lives were equally brutal as the Marines in China. But as the tide of war turned, the island's commander, Navy Captain Sakaibara Shigematsu, became paranoid that the civilians may rise up against them. So after a horrendous air raid in 1943 that saw the death of some of his troops, the commander had the 98 workers lined up and shot. Yet one was only wounded. Hiding in the mound of bodies, he was later able to crawl away. But knowing he was not going to survive his wounds, he carved a message into a large piece of coral so the world would never forget them. The message read, 98 U.S. P.W. 5-10-43, and this can still be seen today. The man who did this, his identity is still not known, was found by the Japanese and beheaded, personally, by Captain Sakabara. 
The war in the Pacific ground down, and the Japanese on wake surrendered on September 4, 1945. His men, now POWs, Sakabura was moved to Guam and tried for war crimes. Up to the moment of his hanging on June 18, 1947, the then Rear Admiral complained of the unfairness of his trial and his harsh sentence. Of the 1,104 civilian workers on wake, the Japanese killed 98. 82 more died from their living conditions, which left 924 to return to the United States, though scarred for life, as were the Marines. Though the fall of Wake Island was another blow to American morale, coming just before Christmas and after Pearl, in time stories would get out about the Marines at Wake, and they would serve as a symbol of resistance. Though he never said it, Devereaux, who was all too human, was labeled as the guy who exclaimed, Send more Japs. Later, as Marine General Alexander Vandegrift, who commanded the 1st Marine Division in the Battle of Guadalcanal, proclaimed, Throughout the war, the slogan of the Marine Corps always was, Remember Pearl Harbor and Remember Wake. Next time, we'll go back to the second week of December 1941 and continue on with the invasions of Operation Number One. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So next week, I will be on my vacation to the beach. Not sure if I can get out another episode by the end of this week to put it out next week, but I'll try. And for you members out there, please note that I haven't forgot you. Um, I do want to pick up the story with the Waffen SS. In fact, if everything goes according to plans, I can do a little bit of writing on the trip down there, on the trip back home, trick my wife into uh, driving. So the plan is when I get home is to quickly put out two membership episodes to thank you for your patience. So everybody take care. Thank you for listening. And when I come back, hopefully you'll hear a slightly more relaxed Ray recording the show. Take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.